Amen. Good group tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of my favorite chapters in all the Word of God. I think it's one of the most important chapters. And so for that reason, we're going to be taking three weeks just for this chapter. There's so much in this chapter and we don't want to rush through it. So uh, really for the rest of this year and then into chapter 16, we'll be finishing up 1 Corinthians so that we can start on the life of David in uh, 2012. So tonight we are going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about what the gospel does, what it is, the facts of the gospel, how it affects our life, and, and in a sense, in all of that, see what we need to zero in on, what we need to focus on when we're talking to people who don't have a personal relationship with Christ. In the first couple of verses, Paul actually is talking more about what the gospel does. Then he's going to talk about the facts of the gospel. And then he's going to come back towards the end of this passage and talk about more of what the gospel does. Uh, what it's done in his life, what it can do in everyone's life. So notice up in chapter 15, verse 1. First of all, he says, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preach to you. Which means that Paul had already preached, obviously, the gospel to them, but he wanted to go back over it again. It is a reminder to us that no matter what we know, no matter how well we know it, it never hurts to go back and remind ourselves of things that we already know. Repetition is a good thing when it comes to the scriptures. We can never go back and look at something again because God and His Spirit and His Word always usually brings something new. It's like the Word of God is a beautiful diamond that you can continue to turn it and see different facets of it every time you and I turn it. So Paul wants them to gain a thorough knowledge. That's what the words make clear of, of the gospel once again, even though he's already preached it to them. What is the gospel? My definition, I'm going to give you my definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It is the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. And so Paul goes on to say, I preach to you this gospel, you received this gospel. Literally, those words mean to make something your own. It reminds us that God gives every human being the opportunity to personally accept Christ. That, that you and I can't come to Christ through family or through, you know, being born in a certain country or whatever. That Every human being has to make that choice. And we have to make it our own. We cannot live off of the faith of somebody else. We can be influenced by their faith. But we've got to make the gospel our own. And that's what Paul means when he says, you received it. Then he goes on to say, and not only that, but on which you stand. That word means to stand firm, to be immovable, to be intact, a strong foundation, stability. So this is really cool. Paul was saying that the gospel, and he's going to get to this in a moment, not only saves us. And when we think about the gospel, that's usually where we go first. But Paul says to the Christian, 
Christian, don't forget that our very stability, the reason that you and I can go through life with any kind of stability or security to be able to stay intact, to be able to stand firm, to have a strong foundation under us is because of the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is not just good for us to bring us to Christ. It is something that it is good for us our whole life. We have to keep going back to the truth that centers on Jesus Christ and know that that's where our stability is. Is that where your stability is today? Is that where our stability is today? Is it on the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus Christ? Or are we trying to to have some other foundation in our life. And this this goes along exactly with even what Jesus said in the Gospels to his followers when he says, if you follow me and you follow my teachings, you're going to have a strong foundation. You're going to have a life that's built on the rock so that when the storms of life come, you're going to be able to stand up to those storms. But if you do not follow me and you do not follow my teachings, then your life is going to be built on sand, on a very shaky foundation. And when the storms of life come, there's going to be great ruin and destruction because that life was not built on a strong foundation. Let's remember something. The gospel does not just save us. It gives us a strong foundation upon which we live our lives. In fact, it is the foundation out of what, which we live our lives. And then Paul goes on to say, and by which you are being saved. Now, Let's remember something that the Bible teaches. The moment a person places their trust and confidence and faith and belief in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are saved at that moment in time. But the Bible also teaches that this salvation also has, in a sense, ongoing effects, even though it was a decision maybe made in the past. That's why we say that When we are saved, we're really saved in three tenses. We are saved from the penalty of sin the moment we trust Christ as our Savior. We never have to worry about paying a penalty for sin. That's why Paul could say to the Romans in Romans 8.1, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The moment you accept Christ as your Savior, you are saved from the penalty of your sin. But we also know as Christians that just because we become a Christian doesn't mean that we don't have the struggle with our human nature, our flesh, temptation, the devil, all these things. And so also we are being saved, and that's where Paul's concentrating here, we are being saved from the power of sin. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's why we need to keep growing as Christians. That's why we can't just stagnate. That's why we need to get into the Word. That's why we need to get into a good church. That's why we need to have great relationships and friendships with other Christians who encourage us and spur us on and refresh us and all these things that we talk about. Because without it, the power of sin is going to become greater than the strength that we have to fight it off on our own. God will give us that strength, but He will give it to us and continue to increase it as we grow in our Christian walk. 
So we are saved from the penalty of sin the moment we accept Christ. We are being saved from the power of sin all throughout our Christian life. And then when we die or the rapture takes place, we will be saved one day from the very presence of sin. And there are three big terms that are used in the Bible that really sort of describe what I've just shared. When you see the term justification in the Bible... That is that moment that we've accepted Christ and we are saved from the penalty of our sin. We are justified. When we are being saved as Christians from the power of sin, that's the word sanctification that you see in the Bible. That's what that word means. That we are continually being set apart and and that our lives are growing in strength to say no to the flesh and no to temptation and yes to God. That's sanctification. And then glorification, when you see that word in the Bible, that's the day that we go to heaven to be with Jesus and we are glorified and given a new body, which we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. So when Paul says, You're not only standing in the gospel, you are being saved by the gospel. He's talking about the power that we have. Again, the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus Christ. And again, it's not just sufficient to bring us into a personal relationship with God. It is also sufficient to give us stability, security, and a strength to overcome sin in our lives. That's why the gospel is something that you and I need to stay connected to our whole Christian life, not just to bring us to Christ. And then he goes on to say, if you hold firmly to the message I preached to you, the words hold firmly mean to continually consult. It goes back to that terminology that I used a couple weeks ago about navigating every step of life with like a compass in your hand and never taking a step without consulting that compass. In fact, these terms were used by mariners in Paul's day to navigate a ship. Just like ships can run aground, they can, they can get into all kinds of trouble unless they are continually consulting where they're going and, and looking at their instruments. In a sense, Paul is saying to us as Christians, we've got to go back to the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ in order to be able to navigate the waters of life so that we don't end up as a Christian in shipwreck. It's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so hopefully in our Christian life, we are just growing in the truth of God, being saved from the power of sin, if we hold firmly, continually consulting that truth and going back to that truth and building our lives on that truth. Paul goes on to say, though, unless you believed in vain. What these words mean is that you really didn't yield or surrender. And we know that that's possible. That, that Paul is also leaving open the possibility that people can say, we can say really easy, oh, I believe. I, I've trusted in Christ. I, I believe. But that doesn't mean they really have. Only God knows their heart. And only God knows whether they've really yielded and surrendered, whether they've really totally rested their salvation, their future, their forgiveness of sins, everything on Jesus Christ and the truth about him, or whether they're still trying to sort of work it out themselves, or they're trusting in something else. Or they have Christ, but they're adding something to Christ, whatever that is. So Paul leaves open that door as well. So here's what the gospel does for us. The gospel saves us. 
It saves us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and one day from the very presence of sin. That's what the gospel does for us. And it also brings stability into our lives. It is the foundation on which we stand, on which we make our stand as we move through life. How we can stand firm and immovable, even though our world and and our lives at times and the circumstances of our life may be chaotic, may be crumbling all around us. Because of the good news that centers on the truth of Jesus Christ, we can stand. So if that's some of the things that the gospel does for us, let's go back again to the facts of the gospel. Paul says in verse 3, I passed on to you. As of first importance, what I also received. And now he begins to share the facts of the gospel. Something I want to point out here. God calls us to faith, but it is faith on facts. See, it's not a blind faith. Many people think that Christians just shut off their brain when they become a Christian and just blindly follow. No. God says, here are the facts. And I want you to place your faith in these facts. And so Paul begins to share with the Corinthians these four facts of the gospel. First of all, Christ died for our sins. That's the first fact. Now within that, I want to break that down because every word is important. First of all, Paul reminds us that the gospel centers on the person of Jesus. It's all about him. That's why we tell people it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with a person, the person, Jesus Christ, because the gospel is about Christ, Christ, very first Christ. It centers on Christ. When you and I talk to somebody about our faith, it has to center on Christ. We can't get caught up in talking about religion and in talking about church and in talking about... We've got to get them to focus on Christ. It is Christ who saves, nothing or no one else. Then the second part of that first fact, Christ died. He didn't just pass out. He didn't just go into a tomb buried alive. He literally died. He gave up the spirit. And the Bible clearly tells us that man did not take his life from him. From him. He is the prince of life. He is the son of God. He gave up his life. But he died. In fact, when they put the spear into Jesus' side and blood and water flowed, medically that was even a sign that he had died. That the blood and water had collected around the sack of the heart, which is a sign of of death. And so God clearly gave people a sign, the fact Christ died. But beyond that, the first fact, it wasn't that he just died as an example. It wasn't that he just died as a good person. It wasn't that he just died as a martyr. He died as our substitute. We just sang about it. He died for our sins. He died in our place. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that we would never have to. The death of Christ is not just looking at the cruelty of men murdering the Son of God. It is so much more than that. That in that moment, we must also remember as Christians that the Bible clearly teaches that the wrath of God 
was poured out upon the Son of God. And for the only moment in time, from eternity past to eternity present, fellowship within the Godhead was broken. And that's why Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to turn, in a sense, His back on His own Son because His Son was taking upon Himself the wrath of God for the sin of mankind. He died for our sins. When you and I are struggling and having a bad day and discouraged, one of the things that I know helps me out is just to sit down and start to contemplate Jesus, the perfect Son of God, died for me. All my sins, past, present, and future. By the way, we don't hear a lot about sin today. We hear about disease and addiction and all these different terms, but we don't hear about sin The Bible says Jesus died for our sins. Sin is anything that is contrary to the character and commandments of God. That's what sin is. Anything that is contrary to God's character and to his command, that's sin. And Jesus died for it all. In our place. Took upon himself the wrath of God. That's the first fact of the gospel. The second fact. He was buried. He was buried. The third fact, he was raised on the third day. By the way, after the words died for our sins and after the words on the third day, a very important phrase that Paul uses twice is according to the scriptures. (laughs) Because Paul's pointing out that these facts were predicted and pictured in the Old Testament. That the scriptures of God predicted, in fact, even Jesus himself while he walked the earth, predicted That he would go and die and that he would be raised again. And the Old Testament is filled with messianic prophecies that predicted all of these facts of the gospel. And like I even said, even pictured it. Remember the story of Jonah? Even Jesus used that. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. The Old Testament predicted and pictured Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, according to the scriptures. But here's the fourth fact of the gospel, verse 5. And this is one that a lot of Christians just stop at the death, burial, and resurrection, but this is just as important. He appeared. And then Paul begins to share, not an exhaustive list, but a representative list of his post-resurrection appearances. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive. You want to talk to them? Go talk to them, Paul said. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to to me, one born at the wrong time. We'll talk about that in a minute appeared. The book of Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus appeared post-resurrection for at least six weeks after he died. At least six weeks after he died. More than 40 days, the Bible says. That's a long time to show himself alive. And like Paul said, many of these eyewitnesses 
to Christ's glorification, they're still alive. You want to talk to them? Go talk to them. And the reason why these post-resurrection appearances are so important to the gospel is because it is showing us the, the proof of human testimony and changed lives. That, that these people who saw the resurrected Christ not only are claiming they did it and, and were one day willing to die for it, but their life changed after that. Even his own followers. We talk about someone like Peter, who on the day he was taken to the cross, denied him three times, and then in a couple weeks, after he saw the risen Christ, he's standing on the day of Pentecost, boldly preaching to thousands of people. What caused that change in Peter? He met the resurrected Christ. In a sense, the same thing is true today. That you and I are sharing personal testimony with others. And hopefully our changed life is also a powerful testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ. And so, these are the facts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Second, he was buried. Third, he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And fourth, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. If you and I have the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, or I guess I should have said about our faith, it's got to center on Jesus Christ. They're going to try to talk about other things. We've got to get them back to talking about Jesus. And let's not forget that when you and I have the opportunity to talk to someone who doesn't know Christ, there's going to be spiritual warfare going on. And even the demonic realm is going to try to do everything they can to divert the conversation to something else other than Jesus. Jesus even ran into this. Remember when he talked to the woman of Samaria? She wanted to talk to him about religion and argue religion. And well, you guys, you worship this way and we worship this way. And Jesus says, it's not about the way we worship. It's about me. In fact, Jesus even turned to his own disciples and said, who do you think I am? And that's when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter, but my father, which is in heaven, revealed that to you. That's what we need to get people back to, Jesus. And then when we talk about Jesus, we talk about his death, burial, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances. That's the gospel. That's the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, in that, then, we are implying something. When we get to the whole died for our sins, yeah, we got to have a tough conversation. Because a lot of people are like, sin? I'm a good person. All of us who came to Christ had to come to a point where we humbled ourselves and admitted we were sinners in need of a Savior. If a person isn't willing to admit that they're a sinner, then there's no reason to go any further because the whole concept of Christ dying for their sins is not going to mean anything to them if they can't even accept the fact that they're a sinner first. So the gospel, though, really lays out a very nice, in a sense, 
place for us to go, a path for us to follow as we talk to people about Jesus and about our faith. Then notice beginning back in verse 8, then Paul goes back and talks about what the gospel does again after he shared the facts. He said, last of all, as though to one born at the wrong time, literally unexpectedly, Jesus appeared to me also. And we know when that took place, it took place on the road to Damascus when he was going to go and slaughter more Christians and throw them in jail. And he says, I am the least, literally the very smallest of the apostles. Paul even says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And one thing that Paul is saying there about the gospel is that the gospel helps us to overcome our past no matter how dark, no matter how bad our past is. Because now here's a man who's talking about the gospel to others, who's living his life for the gospel, but at one time he was the chief persecutor of the church. And Paul is reminding us of something here. Again, contained in this testimony of him, that when you and I run into people who may even say, well, I can't believe that God would ever love me or ever be able to save me or ever be able to use me. Even within this context, you and I have a beautiful picture of Paul's own personal testimony about the fact that he was the worst of the worst. And yet God saved him, not only saved him but called him to maybe be the most important apostle that God ever had. Wrote most of the New Testament. That's what God's grace can do. That's what the gospel can do. It can help us all to overcome whatever our past looks like. Secondly, it gives us everything we need for the present. Notice he goes on to say in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me has not been in vain, not without positive results. I love that. Paul said, God's grace brought me to the point where I could become a Christian. But I never forget that it is also God's grace, his influence, his supernatural enablement, his unbelievable, merciful kindness that is continually with me every day. And if Paul is who he is... And it's any good, it's because of the grace of God. And you and I could say the same thing. That God's grace, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus, not only can help us to overcome our past, it can give us everything we need for the present. Everything. Totally sufficient in Jesus Christ. And then he even goes on to say, it not only can help me overcome my past and give me everything I need for the present, it totally can change my perspective. Because he says, in fact, verse 10, don't miss this, I worked harder than all of them. The word work means intense effort, even amidst trial and trouble. That's what the word worked means. Yet Paul goes on to say, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. What's Paul saying there? Well, he's, he's declaring something that's a little bit opposite of what we hear today. When, when people talk about God's grace, it's almost like, ah, because we live in the age of grace and we don't live under that Old Testament law or whatever anymore, you know, we can sort of take it easy. And Paul's like, you know what? If you as a Christian, if I as a Christian really had a proper concept of God's grace... 
It wouldn't cause us to be more lazy or complacent or comfortable in our Christian life. It would do just the opposite. Because we know that everything we have is so undeserved and that we have so much when we really understand the gospel and when we understand what Jesus really has done for us, my goodness, we should all wake up every day, be so motivated and inspired to live for Christ if we really understand the gospel of God's grace. Paul said, far from from making us just... Yeah, it's God's grace, so, you know, I'm going to be okay. And if I mess up, that's okay too. Paul says, no, no, no. If I really understand grace and what God has done for me that is so undeserved, I'm not going to want to live one second for myself. I'm going to want to live every minute for Jesus Christ. Paul said, that's why I worked even harder than all the other guys around me. Because I could never get over what Jesus did for me in spite of who I was. In spite of who I am, Paul said. Never got over his salvation. I've been a Christian now for... It gets longer every year. (laughs) Almost 39 years. And I will say that one of the greatest struggles as, as you continue to be a Christian longer and longer is even if you try not to, there are times, there are seasons, there are moments where you just start to take your salvation for granted. You start to take God in your life for granted. You, you start to take having the Bible for granted. You start to take having brothers and sisters in Christ for granted. And and I think what Paul's saying here is don't ever get to the point where you take it for granted too long. I mean, we're human. We're, we're, we're going to, at times, just take things for granted. But Paul said, don't stay there too long. Never get over the wonder that God saved you and has a plan and purpose for your life. And then Paul, in the rest of this passage we're going to look at tonight, talks about the heart of the gospel the heart of the gospel. Because there's something that really is even, in a sense, more foundational than anything else. And that is the resurrection. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. If Christ is being preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you in Corinth say there is no resurrection of the dead? By the way, the word resurrection just means to stand up again with something that is lifeless, something that has breathed its last. If there is no resurrection, Paul said of the dead, verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised, obviously. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile. It is empty. It is devoid of truth. And your faith is empty. It's worthless. It's useless. Also, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead, when in reality he did not raise him, if indeed the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. In other words, it's truly the end. There's nothing beyond the grave. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. Paul simply saying, 
if all we can fix our attention to is this life, if we don't, if we really don't have resurrection, if there is no life after death, if there is no future with God and no eternity with God, if there is no heaven, then Paul said, we are the most miserable people on the planet. We are to be pitied above everyone else. Paul said the foundation, the heart of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because take that away, everything else really doesn't matter. After that really struck me many years ago, and even through the influence of some of the Bible teachers that I had in my life, if I get in a conversation with an unbeliever, I not only try to center it on Jesus Christ and on obviously the gospel that he died for our sins, he was buried, and he appeared post-resurrection, but I really try to center in on the heart, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because this is the heart of what we believe. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're done. There's no reason for us to be here or even meet or anything. It's what, dis- it's what makes our faith distinct from all other world religions. Every other leader of world religion throughout history is dead. They are still in the ground. We are the only ones who follow a living Savior. The only one. That's why Jesus can be the only way. Because it all comes down to the resurrection. And for 2,000 years since the resurrection, man has chosen in their unbelief to try to come up with theories of why Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I've shared these with you before. They're pretty lame. I mean, some of the most intelligent people... Some of you know this, some of you don't. I had the opportunity many, many years ago now to debate the world's number one atheist, Dr. Anthony Flew, who taught at Oxford for over 30 years on the resurrection of Christ. The man's a genius as far as the world's concerned, but didn't have one good theory that could explain away the resurrection. Now, I tell you, if Dr. Anthony Flew, who taught at Oxford, was the head of the philosophy department for 30 years, couldn't come up with a good reason why he could argue against the resurrection of Christ, do you think you're going to find someone in Chandler, Gilbert, Mesa, Gold Canyon or something that's going to come up with something? No. You think you could even go on the campus of ASU or down at U of A and find even some brainy professor down there that's going to come up with something? No. Because there is none. And that's what people don't want to take time to look at is the fact that when it really gets down to it, if you ask them, tell me, if you're not going to believe in Jesus, then tell me, You've got to then come up with a reason why you don't think Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And most of them are like, well, I just know he didn't. You know. But but they've never really thought through the fact that in order to reject Jesus, I've got to reject the resurrection. And yet they can't really come up with a good, viable alternative to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shows, again, the verse that Paul talks about how the God of this world blinds their minds. And they refuse to believe because they can't come up with anything that's a better explanation than the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
So that's why Paul ends this great passage, and we'll pick it up then in verse 21 next week. But verse 20, very important. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. By the way, the Bible uses sleep as a metaphor for death. It simply means, the word means to be quiet, to be resting. And anytime you and I have seen a dead body, it it looks like it's asleep. It looks like it's at rest. In fact, the word cemetery means a place of sleep. But Paul wants us to know that Christ became the first fruits. Very interesting word that he uses here. Besides the obvious that we think of in, in an agriculture, agrarian context of first fruits being that first portion of the harvest that is sort of set aside and dedicated, the word also means leader. The word also means that there's more to come. So Paul is also implying by using the word first fruits that God, Jesus Christ, is leading in this resurrection and the fact that others are going to follow Two questions that are fundamental to the human spirit. Has anyone conquered death? And if so, did they make a way for us to conquer death as well? And Paul is saying, oh yeah. Jesus conquered death and he made a way for us to conquer death as well. That's the first fruits. That's the hope that we have through the gospel. That even as the Bible says, that great enemy, maybe the greatest enemy of men, death, has been overcome and conquered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To the point where not that we go through life wanting to die, but as a Christian we should never fear death because for us, death is simply entrance into glory and into the presence of God and into resurrection. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, Don't forget what the gospel does for us. It saves us. It gives us stability. It helps us to overcome our past. It gives us everything we need for the present. And it totally changes our perspective on living life. The facts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared. He appeared. He appeared. And Paul says... Take away the resurrection, we've got nothing. Give me the resurrection, we've got everything. We've got everything if Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Do you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead? I do. And because of that, that's why we can be so thankful every day. Because we've been given life. And we never have to worry about paying for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. That's the good news. We just need to receive it. We just need to make the gospel our own. Have you done that? Have you truly made the gospel, the good news that centers on the truth about Jesus Christ, have you really, really, really made it your own? Is that what you're resting in? Is that what you're trusting in? Is that what you're placing your confidence in? For now and throughout eternity. That's a question that is the most important question you and I will ever answer. Let's close in prayer. God, I just 
feel very impressed tonight to ask if there's someone here tonight, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Is there someone here tonight who would say, Pastor Jeff, you've talked about the gospel tonight, you've talked about Jesus. But I can honestly say in in my heart of hearts, there's never been that moment where I really trusted, placed my confidence, placed my faith fully in Jesus Christ and in nothing and no one else to save me from the penalty, power, and one day from the presence of sin. But tonight, tonight I want to make that decision for Christ. I, I want to place my life into his hands. I know I'm a sinner. I I know I have not lived up at all times to the character and commandments of God. I've missed the mark. But I now once again realize that I don't need to keep trying to make the mark on my own because I never will. But Jesus came to do for me what I could never do for myself. And tonight, I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior. If there is someone here tonight like that, I'm the only one looking around. And the only reason I want to look is to be praying for you. If you want to have a conversation with me, I'll be glad to do that. But otherwise, I just want to acknowledge that. And just want to pray for you. If there's someone, just please raise your hand and put it back down. Anyone at all. Anyone at all. So Lord, I, I just ask that as Christians here tonight, God, we would once again, like Paul, be inspired and motivated by the gospel. That maybe we've gotten to a point where we've begun to take our salvation for granted. We've begun to take what you did for us for granted and we've gotten a little complacent. God, help us to get stirred again. To sort of recommit ourselves to just living for you. To just abandon our life for you. To be all in for Jesus. Because Jesus, you were all in for us. You threw yourself out there. As we talked about Sunday, you exposed yourself to anything and everything to demonstrate your love for us. God, may we do the same for you. Give us a great week, God. Help us to just overflow with thanksgiving with hearts that are full because we have you in our life. And God, we not only thank you for you and for everything that you bring, but God, thank you for the blessing of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the blessing that they are to us. And I thank you, God, that you've given me the privilege to be the pastor of such a wonderful, wonderful group of people who are wonderful beyond words, And so, God, I pray that you would bless them and give them a great week, a great Thanksgiving holiday weekend. 
And Lord, for those of us that are in town, just prepare us to come together on Sunday and just totally just lift you up on Sunday once again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you for being here. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Have a wonderful day.